This is the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast for April 6th of 2015. Joining us today we have KG, Joel, Mike, Pascal, Roy, Ration, Dr. Retro, Stuart, and Joe from the Origin Museum. Topics for today include, was everything really better back then? Do all game collectors have to be super nerdy or can they be attractive and cool? And starting off we have our favorite games from our personal collections. Um, I had to really put some thought into this because I don't really own anything that you guys would consider like massively rare. <clears throat> I guess this is, but um, well, probably the most rare thing that I do own, or the thing I'm most proud of, is the Kingdom of Amalur Reckoning Collector's Edition, which uh, has an interesting story behind it. Um, 38 Studios, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of those guys, but it was Kurt Schilling's um, game company. And it was Kurt Schilling and Tom Farlane and um, uh, R.A. Salvatore were making, gonna start making video games. And this is the one and only game that they ever made. The interesting thing about the collector's edition is you can only get it from directly from their website. So not a lot of people even knew that it existed at the time. Um, it was fairly expensive. I don't remember how much I paid for it. It, was, it seems like it was a couple hundred bucks. Um, when it arrived, they're very rare in good condition, and mine is, is crunched. The reason is because uh, it was shipped in a huge box, and um, it came with this absolutely massive statue of a troll thing that oh. Todd McFarlane uh, produced for the company. And um, it's really heavy. It's like super solid. I don't know what it's made out of. Some sort of a um, resin or something. And that came in this big box that's separate from the game box. That is well, the, a big box. Yeah, it's huge. The uh, the box that, that this was shipped in had no packing materials. So the statue was just floating around, like banging up against the, the actual game box, which is here. Um, so they're pretty rare and in good condition. Um, it came with a lot of your standard kind of um, collector's edition stuff. Um, the game is in here. This one, the code's been used on Origin, so it's um, not as valuable as uh, some of the other ones. This is a box of like cards of some kind. I'm not sure, like a collector card sort of thing. It's got a map in here. It's got a little little baggy. Um, it came with some Chess X Dungeons and Dragons dice. Um, there's a map in here, some sort of cool stuff. Um, but uh, since no one knew about it really until after it was released, they, they get pretty high prices on eBay. I've heard that the um, a new copy that hasn't had the code busted can go for five grand. Um, the ones that that have been used like mine. There's one on eBay right now that's sold for $600 in a used state. But um, that's probably the, the one that I'm most proud of having and probably the most rare What's one in my game life. Like? That's the funny thing is the story behind the game is more interesting than the game itself. But the game is sort of like a rudimentary RPG. Um, sort of plays like World of Warcraft, like you could tell, because 38 Studios' main mission was to produce an MMO that, that Kurt Schilling was a big fan of EverQuest. He wanted to make an MMO, and the game they were working on looked really this good. This game, they say, didn't sell enough um, to um, keep the game the, the studio floated, um, which is odd because of, this game sold over a million copies, so there's a lot of money shenanigans, like... Or, uh, Kurt Schilling owes the state of Rhode Island millions of dollars and all kinds of crazy stuff. That the story is fascinating. I'll try to link it in the some stuff about it in the group. But the game itself is like just kind of okay. I mean, um, I never really finished it because it wasn't that amazing that I just wanted to um, go nuts with it or anything. But uh, it's an interesting piece. The collector's edition is an interesting piece. That's very interesting. Yeah. I actually really would like to get a copy of that. I mean, I, I've <laughs> I only heard about it once it came out, and it got very good reviews, and the studio shut down like immediately after. 
So you can get like uh, a non-collector's edition copy for like 10 bucks, very cheap, sealed, whatever. But if you want the collector's edition, yeah, the cheapest I've ever seen it was like $500. And usually it's it's north of that. And, and there's, there was a few different editions too because there's one I think that Todd McFarland signed, what he didn't sign. Okay. And then, yeah, that was called the signature edition, which I do not have, which goes for way more. Um, you, got it, you had a chance of getting either Kurt Schilling to sign it, Todd McFarlane to sign it, or Ari Salvatore to sign the statue, to sign the base of the statue. The problem with that edition is Ari Salvatore and Todd McFarlane are both extremely um, uh, available, and for the most part, for autographs. So people take the statues to conventions and get them to sign them. So there's more signed statues out there than there were um, versions of that released so um, you don't know if you're getting one that was originally signed. The Kurt Schilling one oddly enough was the one that no one wanted but it ends up being the most expensive one after the story blew up because he's like the face of that doomed company so uh, everyone wishes they had gotten a Kurt Schilling signed the statue. Ultima Escape from Mount Drash. <laughs> there are about seven copies in the world. I don't have a box. This is nothing more than a printout of the cover of the box, but I did manage to snag a cassette. I was able to find a cassette on eBay. The story behind this is that this particular one was, I think, the third one ever found, and somebody actually found it on eBay in a box of Commodore 64 and Vic 20 cassettes that he bought all in one shot for 10 bucks. So somebody basically he snapped he snapped it up at a bite you know, and then somebody let him know that this one was valuable. He put it up on eBay and there was a horrible war and a horrible fight and I was one of the people I was I was the high bidder on it. So they're not worth as much as they used to be. But I'm still incredibly proud of it, and it, my mounting techniques have all but fallen along the wayside, so it's kind of slid down. It looked real nice in its day. i got to take the frame apart and put it back. But it's just the cassette, but I'm incredibly proud of it. If anybody knows about this game, the game is horrible. It's a Sierra game, and it's, oh, um, yeah, Pascal is going, yeah, I'm familiar with Mount Trash. But actually, actually, Joe, I, I know two ones who have the boxed version of it. Um, within this inner Sierra collector circle, there are some who have it. And the last one who got his one from eBay paid like around $3,700 for it or something like that. Mine was not nearly that much. That is so incredible rare. I'm, I'm just happy that it's not an adventure game, otherwise I'm looking for it as well, but I'm not interested in having it in my collection, but this is this is uh, one of the holy grails here you can look for. Yeah. Yes, it is. There's a great story behind it, too. Literally, the story of it is that Sierra originally held the license for the game when Garriott was, trying, was working hard to start Origin. After he had left Sierra... Uh, they still owned the license for a while, and they said, could somebody please make a game? Uh, and they asked Garriott's friend, uh, who was still working for Sierra, and they wrote up this whole story about the evil Garin Trots. Those are the kings that you have to defeat, the Garin Trots. And this game was, nobody thought it was ever even released, but... There was someone uh, who was one of the original Ultimate Dragons that used to spam in the forums all the time, in the news groups, I'm looking for this game, I'm looking for this game, I'm looking for this game, and he actually got a hold of one, and he was very excited about it, and that's when the whole thing took off. Like I said, this is probably the third or the fourth one that was found, but uh, that original copy uh, still goes around. As a matter of fact, I think it's owned by someone in Germany now. He ended up selling it for a ridiculous amount of money. But anyway, that's that's mine today. I was wondering, Joe, why is it so scarce? Because it's Sierra, it's a big publisher, Ultima, big series. Basically, it's because there were not very many made. It was 
when the VIC-20 was basically on its way out, the Commodore 64's price had dropped dramatically about 1983, uh, they didn't do a big run of them because they were just kind of feeling out the waters to find out if Garriott would sue them or not. And so there weren't that many, and it didn't sell well. Okay. So How many are there are very many to begin with. Plus, it's considered an Ultima, and that's what made the desire so high. Yeah, true. But what what's the estimated number out there? Because a print run usually has like a set number. I believe that. Oh, how many were in the print run? I have no idea, but I would guess it was between five and eight thousand copies. But to the best of my knowledge, there's less than ten that exist. So there is a chance that somewhere in a dark, danky warehouse, there's a box that has the rest of them. I'll let you know when I find them. <laughs> Sure. Isn't there like an urban legend about that game being like tossed in a landfill off a cliff or something? That was actually a miss. That was a, a misquote, and that's kind of my fault. In the news groups right now, you can still look up alt binaries, you know, and go through the news groups, and you can find that literally one. That's true. One was found at the bottom of a cliff in Canada. One was found. Basically, a game company or a not a game company, but a software store was throwing out all of their excess software in the late 80s. And they, instead of going to the local dump, they dropped it off the edge of a famous clip that's known for everybody dumping their garbage out there. So this was found among them. And what I think is funny is that the story got twisted into. There, every somebody dumped all these drashes down a mountain. It's like that's not true. It basically it was found amongst a garbage dump. That's all. I'm going to jump in with the game I'm proudest to have. It's not because I have anything particularly rare. My my collection, the, while having some interesting items, pales in front of Joe's or Pascal's or most other people's, but. Something that's quite important to me is actually owning original software, which I think we'll probably touch on in the future. Um, I grew up in Cyprus, and there there was no there was no copyright agreement. Uh, so what we had were game stores selling these. This is a bootleg. This is a bootleg of Larry Three. It is a big box bootleg. Um, I've also similarly eventually managed to get hold of not Quest for Glory, but as I will always know it, Heroes Quest. I don't seem to have Quest for Glory 2, or at least I haven't found it in my boxes yet, so I thought I'd got a copy, but uh, I may not have done, in which case I'll be attempting to find one. But having only having access to bootleg software in the, uh, when I, during that, those sort of formative years of gaming, um, as soon as we had a legit software store, I took up hanging, hanging out and helping out there well, pretty much constantly. But it's really given me a great value, particularly for big boxes, particularly for all the stuff you get. Sort of only having the option of bootleg software, I think, really um, makes me treasure original software a lot more. It makes me rather sad that we've lost, kind of lost the big box ethos. Um, but I do love the effort that went into these bootlegs. Uh, were the were what were the prices of the bootlegs in Cyprus? Do you recall? I honestly can't remember. They weren't ridiculously exorbitant, but also working out the exchange rate's a bit weird because the Cyprus pound was worth something like two British pounds and four US dollars, so um, it's hard It's hard to convert. If I find one with a price on it, I will let you... Oh, there we go. 16 Cyprus pounds. Uh, so that would have been the equivalent to... I'm not entirely sure about the dollar conversion, but that would have been... Yeah, that would have been like new software prices, new legitimate software prices equivalent. Except, of course, once they started bringing stuff into Cyprus, the price actually doubled. So they went, to the, they just went to using the British pound price. So everything got more expensive, but it was totally worth it. So cool. That's cool. That's incredibly cool. Um, one of the first things I got when I started collecting PC big boxes. Um, I'm a big, 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 big fan of the Little Big Adventure series, and that was the reason why I got into PC big box collecting. But when I started, um, I had no clue about rarity. I had a lot of Nintendo, a lot of Sega, etc. 
but no clue what PC games were rare. And I was talking to a, a friend of mine in the UK who goes to car boots, and he said, well, I pick up a lot of uh, PC games. Uh, are you looking for some particular items? So I just named the games I had as a kid. Well, I played Doom, I played Wolfenstein 3D, I played Commander Keen. I want all of those in the original boxes. Well, it turns out those are all pretty rare. But um, a week later, he contacted me and said, hey, well, uh, I found something at the Carboot for you. And it's one of my most prized possessions. It's the UK release of Wolfenstein 3D. And this is, as far as I know, the only release that has actual swastikas and Hitler, there he is. Having lived in the UK, they 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 are, they have an undue passion for for Hitler. I mean, the History Channel there is is basically nicknamed the Hitler Channel. If it, if, Hitler if, you could, if you if you if you if it if it involves anything about the Second World War, they're nuts for it and all the symbolism. Yeah, but everywhere else they didn't have the Nazi symbols, and even the German release had the Nazi symbols removed, I believe. But yeah, this is the only version um, that has the actual main bad guy in the, in the game. And that same week, or the same day, he said, well, I have Wolfstein 3D for you, and I have something else that's a part of your childhood for you. And I didn't know it was ridiculously rare because you couldn't buy it in stores. But he also had this one. The original share, uh, not shareware, but the original bought version um, from Doom. And nice. you, could only get, you could only get this by uh, mail ordering it directly from ID or it. Uh, I had no clue. I was just very happy to have Doom and Wolfenstein, and later on I found out how hard to find these are. And uh, I have some more rare, really rare PC games, but those combination of rare and um, the childhood memories I have with these games makes them most special to me. Thanks a lot, KJ, for the hint. <laughs> um, I'm still looking for the UK version of Wolfenstein, and it, it was on eBay a few days ago. It was, but, but the seller, the seller removed it. Um, already, a few guys were bidding on it, and he removed it. And I was in, in discussion with him, and he said, um, "Yeah, he had some, some." I didn't, I didn't believe him. He said, "Like he found out the discs were not working, and he don't want to sell a game where the discs not working and stuff." Other, other guys contacted he him. Totally and, yeah, yeah. He, he later told me that he got a lot of offers for the version, even though the, the discs are not uh, completely functioning. And he told me that someone offered him a four-figure sum for it, so I don't know how much, but it, it got sold for a lot of money. So. Holy crap. This is what I mean about the artificial inflation of game values. I mean, these are great, but, and, I and I love this stuff, but the price this stuff goes for, I, I can't, it's yeah, really but, hard to imagine actually describing honest, actual value like that. It, it heavily depends, to be honest. I'm watching a lot of games. Um, I'm, I already have in my collection to see you know, if they show up, how much do they cost if they show up and stuff. It really, really depends. There is a game, if you take Softborn Adventure, for example, it can sell one week for like $1,500. The other week, it, it may be sold for only $300, $400. So what it is worth at the end. No? It, it only depends if there are one or two crazy collectors at the same time willing to throw in as much money as possible just to get it. But yeah, it's worth what people pay for it. It's really yeah, hard to tell it really what it's worth. Yeah. The, I had an example last week. I'm, uh, I'm also a big PlayStation collector. I was looking for one particular game to finish my PlayStation collection. Popped up last week, and I immediately side-bit. I, I emailed the guy, listen, I'm going to give you $200 or 200 euros for it right now. He said, well, uh, uh, yeah, of course. So got taken off immediately. Probably I overpaid, probably by even 100 euros, but still. I now have the game, and that was, was, that was most important to me. So maybe Which with the Wolfstein was guy, it was the same. You probably didn't overpay. You probably, you probably underpaid, actually. Because, I mean, if you thought you were overpaying, you would have waited. But you thought that maybe someone's going to yeah. pay more. That's why you were trying to like, get it as soon as you can, right? Yeah, well, for me, it was mainly, I've been looking for that one for three and a half years. I can spend the money, and I don't want to wait anymore. I want to complete the set. So, yeah, well, fuck it. Here's 200 euros. I want my Tekken 2 commemorative disc. Tekken <laughs> 2. <laughs> the Wolfenstein that, that, that um, Pascal mentioned, I saw that on eBay also, and it was, like, it was like one euro or two euros, and then it was taken off. It was very cheap, and it was taken off. This guy that was offered a lot of money, that could have been 50 euros for all we you know, or 50 pounds, whatever it is. Like, at the end, that was a lot of money because these games were worth five bucks or five pounds, five quid, whatever you want to call it. And really, you know, somebody was willing to pay 300 
pounds for it. So, you know, I I typically don't do these things where I contact the guy off off site just because I hate when people do it when I'm looking at an auction. But you know, I'm not criticizing you for doing what you did to get your tech in. I, I understand, <laughs> but it's 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 a it's a tough you know it's, there's, there's two sides of it I guess it's tough. To yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you, and I usually. I think it's the second time I've done it in the last two years, but uh, for this one, I've been looking for it so long, and the problem is a lot of people know that I'm looking for it, and I'd rather just pay 200 now and get it than have it artificially driven up because people know I'm going to go for it. I can totally understand that. Yeah, you probably have the same thing, Joe. With my YouTube channel and uh, a lot of people following me, they know I'm looking for the Tekken 2 commemorative disc, or I'm, they know I'm looking for whatever Commander Keen games. If people know you're bidding, ah, well, we're going to bid it because we know he wants it anyway. I, I agree on what Stuart said because um, I think at least if someone puts something on eBay for for one dollar and and see how how it ends at the end of the auction. I think it should stay there. No? I don't like the reasons they they later get to remove it because someone offered them like one hundred thousand dollars or whatsoever. I mean it's a tough a tough call. If if I offer something and someone offered me thousand dollars, no, just get it off eBay and sell it right now. I'm not sure how I would um, act on that, but yeah, it's always always a hard one to decide on what is wrong and what is right there. I would, yeah, I would probably think, why is someone offering me a thousand dollars if it's at one euro now? What's the actual value? It would make me think. Yeah, that's a, that's a decision there. No? If you stick to that and see if it gets to thousand two hundred dollars or even more, or no? is it is it a one time of a deal? Well, what does everybody think of that? I personally used to get absolutely furious with folks putting stuff up on eBay and then. They disappear because everybody says, will you accept to buy it now? Will you accept to buy it now? And they basically get it yanked off of eBay very, very quickly. And that used to frustrate the all get out out of me because I'd be watching it and I want to bid on it. And, you know, I want to work, I want to use eBay the way it's supposed to be used. But I used to get into this fervor of anger because all of a sudden it would disappear. And I think that's not playing by the rules. Mystery house. Now yeah, we knew this was going to be good. So this is this is flamed, um, and I leave it in the flame um, because it, it still has this um, how you say the um, the plastic. It came with a, it is not sealed, but it, it still has the original plastic film, so it was opened carefully, and it is complete with everything with a disc and registration card and another card with some information on it. So as I guess most. Of us know this was the first um, graphic adventure, graphical adventure game um, done by Sierra back in when was was, was it um, back in here yeah, in the 80s, 1980. It was released in May 1980, first graphic adventure game of the world. If if a PC game can be sexy, that that's one that is. Yeah, actually, it it, it was no PC game, but. Um, on the other things, I agree, Joe, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I got all the funny things. This one is, is, is um, labeled as Hyrule's Adventure 1. As, it, as you can see, it maybe somewhere over here. So it's Hyrule's Adventure number 1. There is a Hyrule's uh, Adventure uh, 0 available um, too. This was um, Mission Asteroid, um, but it was released after Mystery House, so Mystery House is is labeled as the first graphic adventure game of the world. Is um, there a reason why the numbers were reversed? And I think I've read something like they, they started developing it and Mystery House was finished earlier than, than uh, Mission Asteroid, I guess. Um, so they just stick to that. I think it was supposed to be like a short introductory type game. That's I think I remember hearing that. It was like not a full-fledged, full-size adventure, and therefore they called it number zero. I think they were selling, they bundled it with some of the other ones at some point, and they had a, a lower price point or something like that. Now, that mystery house, Pascal, that's, uh, that's called a large folio. Is that correct? You mean the, the, the folder thing or what? 
Yes. The size, yeah, it, I, I know it just as a large folder. I'm not sure if, if you call it otherwise. I, th I think the addition is they call they call the Sierra Venture folder, right? That's the Sierra Venture yeah, exactly. one. Yeah, right? exactly. Sierra had different names back then for the company. This was the Sierra Venture release. I mean, it was not the first release of Mystery House. You have smaller folder uh, releases available. There are like two or three other smaller folder uh, releases available. They come just in a plastic bag and were sold by, by um, Ken and Roberta individually, going you know, driving to stores, hand them a few copies, and, and sell it on that way. So this is actually like the, the third or fourth or, or so release. But the other ones are so, so in, it is incredibly hard to get a mystery house. And the other ones, the smaller ones, are, are just incredibly rare. And, and there's even no chance to find one. I'm not sure how to do that. I know a few collectors who have one from the earlier versions, but of course, they stick to it. They are not willing to sell it, and this would be pricey, I guess, if someone tries to do so. So, how much was there once this one? Um, actually, I didn't got that one on a single base. I was very lucky that I got one of the the huge Sierra lots that was out there a few years ago. So it was a lot um, of games with like over 30 games in it from from the earlier Sierra games. And that lot was like a bit more than $3,000, but compared to the games, it was like nothing. So it was like, I, I have like a hundred something dollars per game. And I, there was, there were all the mystery house and the, sorry, the high risk adventure games from Sierra included and a lot other rare ones, a complete time zone in box and so. And um, I, I sold all the other non adventure games I'm not interested in and I reduced my my price for the lot by that on in, in a heavy way, so this was really a great deal, I think. Um. You've got a lot of differences between between gaming now and then, not least for because of the sort of the kinds of budgets that are involved. Um, you uh, a triple A game these days is. Uh, is you know a block is likely to draw in more profit than a blockbuster movie, and so the priorities have changed. The audience has changed. In a lot of ways, the audience is more egalitarian, more spread out, because used to have there used to be a bar of both wealth and technology to access games, which may have sort of affect, uh, affected the uh, audience as well as the available technology um, to make the games, um, having an obvious effect on the way they were designed. Certainly, design was a lot tighter in the past. Um, or if you, if you just look at uh, if you just look at the fact that uh, your classic games, your Wolfenstein 3, 3Ds and so on, fit into less than five megabytes of disk space, well less than five megabytes of disk space, as I recall. Um, even when you take into account the limit, the low-res graphics and sound of the era, that is some efficient coding. Um, now everything sprawls. Uh, my housemate just download, downloaded the. Uh, 80 gigabyte uh, client for um, Elder Scrolls Online. So you've got ob very obvious differences, but uh, I think the efficiency of design in older games is really what stands out uh, stands out to me. Um, but I think everyone has their own take, positive and negative. So um, opinions, please. In a way, enjoy gaming modern gaming more than the old school gaming experience, not so much in the big box capacity because we all love the stuff and in a modern sense we're missing the stuff, but as far as actually playing the games, ever since the Xbox 360 generation ended, or began I should say, I find myself finishing more games than I ever before. The reason is because their storytelling and their pacing all got a lot tighter. These folks started hiring people like writers and cinematographers and things that uh, studios back in the 80s didn't have the money or the ability to hire these folks. So the game, the games have got, got more streamlined. Part of the reason why that appeals to me more now is because uh, I'm an adult now and as a guy who works you know more than 40 hours every week for my job, I don't have the time that I had as a kid to sit down and just kind of dink around on Ultra 7 for an entire weekend, like I used to. 
as an adult, um, it's almost like games have matured with me because they kind of, games were born at the same time I was, essentially, um, and we've grown up together, and now they're making games for people just like me, and the people making them are in the exact same boat that I'm in. I think I put my my um, hat squarely in the uh, modern games category. Uh, I mean no disrespect to Mr. McCoy, but you have no idea what the hell you are talking about. No, I'm joking. But I am raising a point here. I would respectfully disagree with what you what you just said. I, I come to believe that games from a while ago had more depth. There is there is a, a group of series that have a lot of depth related to them, but they're not. They're few and far between. Most of the games that I enjoy because of depth of storyline are like the old Ultimas and Wing Commanders. And yeah, perhaps they were not written by professional writers. And you know, I mean, there's a running gag about Wing Commander that you know. Who was the traitor? Because it was a traitor in every single one of the games, you know. I Garrett I personally like Garrett was like a, a one time uh, natural talent that we'll never see again. So he he was a guy who had the whole package, right? He was he was a good writer. He was good everything. He could do it all. Um, games like his were pretty rare back then, and I played you know a lot of those type of games and. I've got a ton of games on that shelf that I've never finished because uh, Ultima Seven I've never finished because that game is hard as hell. You know, uh, I, I do like I the ability. I've invested more hours in Ultima Seven than I invested in Skyrim and Civilization put together. That well, okay, maybe not Civilization, but definitely more than in Skyrim. And I put 130 something hours into Skyrim. I have 160 hours or so in Skyrim. So I'm with you on that. I have to call BS on Joe's. This whole statement, only because admitted in the past, Joe, that you haven't really played any games from beyond like 2000. So therefore, obviously, you're not going to find any enjoyable ones in that pile. Oh, I, see. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's just logic here. You can't you can't fight the logic. But but I, would, I just want to say I'll let you respond in a second. I just want to say that I think that you're, you're there's some truth to what you're saying in the fact that like. Nowadays, you chunk out these massive you know, amounts of Call of Duties and all these Me Too games and clones or whatever else, and a lot of it is not... It's not the same type of innovation that they had back in the day. I think that's certainly true. But I also think that a lot of the games from back in the day were not very good. So, for example, Mystery House, you know, very collectible game, not a very good game, in my opinion. Wizard of the Princess, a pretty bad game. King's Quest One, eh, mediocre. I mean, for the time, it was amazing because, like, all the great, you know, graphics and animation and 3D effects and all that in King's Quest 1, but as a game, today, does it hold up? Not really. So, I mean... Sunnel is not the same as objectively good. Right, yeah. right. And so my, my top games of all time happen to be around the 90s, like Day of the Tentacle and King's Quest 6 and Secret of Monkey Island, but that's partially because of nostalgic reasons. There you go. Partially because of nostalgic reasons... Partially because they're actually really, really good games. But, I actually you know, played the Monkey Island games for the first time uh, about a year ago. But don't ask. Uh, um, I played a lot of LucasArts after Monkey Island, but I never played the Monkey Island games. I, play, I played them on a phone, on the tube, on the way to work when I still lived in London, and they were absolutely amazing. I think, that, I think adventure games from that, from once you got to a certain level of graphical quality, Adventure games, in particular, age really well. I found the same when I replayed Beneath the Steel Sky. Um, so I think some games do objectively hold up, but most of those, uh, you need to be into the late 80s before modern gamers or even people who've acclimatized to modern gaming can sort of cope with the terribleness of the interfaces and the graphics. I've, seen, I've, I've endured some terrible interfaces while playing retro games. Correct, and it comes down to exactly what you're talking about, KG. I mean, I've heard so many analogies of people talking, uh, comparing uh, video games and computer games to Hollywood, and we had the era of the silent movie, and we had the era of color, and we had the era of talkies and like that, and you can go back and look at all those silent movies, and there are only a few that everybody basically points out and says, 
these are fantastic. You never hear of the Keystone Cops movies being considered absolutely fantastic uh, bits of movie history because it's a one-man show and it's just mind candy and it's a bunch of people running around and hitting each other on the head and that, that was that. What I'm saying is that it matured at the same time. I agree with you in that, but we all matured with it. So is that posing an issue in regard to the question itself? I mean, uh, are kids today, do kids today look at old Ultimas and just go, I'm not even going to get involved because Ultima 7 looks like a Nintendo game that I don't think is cool? But the things like Zork still hold up today. I mean, just so the, who plays it versus whether it's good or not, I think are two different questions. So I agree, Joe, that you know kids nowadays, you have to play like a Zork or Ultima 7, let alone Ultima 1, is going to be a very tough sell. But it doesn't mean they're not good games. I, I mean, I think fundamentally what I, what I, how I see this is that back then there were, like I said, everybody was innovative. I think now you probably have close to the same output of good games you did back then, but you also have tons and tons of other garbage that's flooding the market, especially like if you look at the casual market, like, you know, forget it, there's tons of stuff out there. So the good games are still there, but you've got to really know what you're looking for. You've got to search for them a little bit more, but th there's good stuff coming out today. Agree. I mean, I'm, I'm still enjoying, enjoying, I enjoyed playing a lot of games back then, and I still enjoy playing new modern games today, but I'm a bit like, um, how to say, disappointed how many bad games shows up today. Um, we are talking about like over 30 years of, of game development, and there should be like a million books out there on, on what, what to do right and wrong in a game, or what to avoid to, to have a bad game. There's, there are so many games that are disappointing me, and especially in the, in the adventure game genre. And that is where I think, I see what, what Stuart said. I mean, there are a lot of games which are um, interesting to collect, but gameplay-wise, they were not that good at all back then. But um, given at the time they were developed ne, and, and, and the, the possibilities they had with, with tools, with, with trying new things and stuff, some of these games did something for the first time at all. Um, it is hard to compare to say which game was what good or bad back then and is good or back, uh, good or bad uh, nowadays. So it's, it's a bit hard to say how can we say something 20 years ago, is, is it better with, compared to a game today, yes or no. no? Dead ends in adventure games, I, I liked them a lot back then. If you did something stupid, you died. You, you, you cannot offer that today for, for the audience because they played for like five minutes, they die. No one took a save point if it got out of save or so, and they say get get away, and I jump over to the next game, and I don't don't continue playing it. So it it changed a lot in ways how we play, how often we play, how game developers. If you speak to game developers, one Gilbert was in, in an interview. He said, and um, he likes shorter games today because he's getting older. He don't have so many time to play games. So if he develops a game he takes his age into into development as well, né, to say, hey, if I want to create a new game, then it has to be something I can finish in like three hours. Show me an adventure game. Yeah, KJ? I kind of like the way narrative density is coming. I mean, it shows up more actually in RPGs and adventure games, I think, than the sprawl of Skyrim and so on, notwithstanding. But uh, it used to be, I mean, particularly if you go back to some stuff like, and this is the reason a lot of people find Bard, the Bard's Tale games are particularly bad offenders for this, virtually unplayable, but all a lot of 80s RPGs do this to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, you've got dungeon after dungeon of repetitive content that's packed in there just to justify the exorbitant price, because game because inflation being what it is, and then being no Steam sales and so on, games used to be worth a healthy watch of cash. I mean, the entire hobby used to be, you know, the preserve of people who had money to throw around to a large extent, in a way that it's almost hard to process. Hard to process now. But uh, if you are going to pay, if you're going to pay the sort of the equivalent of a week's wages or something for a game, you or uh, you better get a health a healthy load of entertainment out of it. And um, I think the fact that we pay less for games now means that uh, they feel that they can be more compact, and in a lot of ways, 
that means there's less gratuitous content. You've got greater narrative density. And I, I play games for narrative. I mean, I sometimes play, I play games to blow the shit out of stuff, but I am a fan of narrative. So I think that's a key difference. Yeah, I, um, I get really irritated when uh, a game is more, now anyway, when a game is more than like 10 hours long or even more than eight hours long, it just goes, um, I think a lot of these guys um, have a feeling that they need to pad these games out because older games were longer. And I think it was Assassin's Creed Unity I was playing recently. Was, I finished that game, and I, I loved that game, even though the, the critics all crapped on it. But that was a great game. Get it, if you haven't got it. Anyway, um, it, was, it's, it, was, it felt long, and by the time the game was over, uh, I was very much like, just just finish. I, I just be done with it, you know? And it just felt like it just kept going on and on, and modern games have a tendency to do that. And when the critics, like, crap on a game, a modern game that's, like, what was it, that Order of 1866, or whatever that PlayStation 4 game is that just came out, that was, I think it said it was, like, five hours long. And then they were all crapping on it for that, and I looked at that and thought, okay, well, that that's actually sounds pretty good to me. Um, I think more the advantage of that one was that uh, it had fairly prepared had fairly bland background. Um, I haven't played it, let, let alone reviewed it. Most of the reviewers I know criticised it for being fairly bland in terms of it, it yeah, in terms of its storyline in particular, rather incoherent. It had good moments and some good scene setting, but some fairly bland aspects of levels and uh, a storyline that never meshed together. But it still looks like an interesting game potentially. I've played some really good games that were about five hours long, and um, what I find is, is I'm more likely to want to replay those games since they're that short, rather than if they're like 12 hours long or whatever, you know, 16 hours long, like Assassin's Creed Unity it was a good game, I thought, but I'll never play it again because it just took too damn long. Yeah, but I would, I, I get your point, but I would say it, it really depends on, on which genre we are talking about. I mean... If I see modern adventure games, they are like like five to seven hours. The story is not really developing. It is you. The character is so there's no depth. Like like Joe said before, there's no depth in the games. And I want to go into the story. I want to learn about the characters, the background. No? I want to have a story that develops through certain steps. And so um, you don't find that in, for my opinion, I haven't only played a few short games where I say really that that was um, done very well there, where they had enough time to let the, the story develop. I agree on Sometimes other games. Work. I, I, I mean, Alcatraz, to... for example, was uh, quite a good example. I Alcatraz. I can't recommend the, um, the Telltale, uh, that wolf game that they did that was based on the Fables comics, mm -hmm. which is a modern-day adventure game. The way I know Telltale comes up a lot, especially in the Sierra groups, um, because they're kind of carrying the torch of modern adventure games at the moment. But their system of the, the episodic system, I think, is I personally think is a very good one. Like I really enjoyed the Walking Dead games. I really enjoyed that Wolf. I can't remember the name of it right now. The Wolf Among Us, right? Uh, was a great game, and um, they're very bite-sized chunks. You know, that, I don't know how long the, the actual game ended up being as a whole, but the episodes were about two hours a pop. So the Sam Max games work well as episodes, uh, but I think it's interesting the way, I mean, this is going off the topic to a certain extent, the way Telltale's left aside the uh, standard adventure format like they did in Sam, uh, Sam and Max and um, I don't, so I don't on. really um, call them adventure games. Move to interactive them. movies. Yeah, I think I think the thing is the, the game could be ten hours or forty hours, but the problem is when it, it's forty hours because they pad it out. Yeah. So in the case of adventure games, they put in some really hard puzzles that nobody can figure out. And you're stuck on that one puzzle for five hours. So you look at oh, a that, 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 that's <laughs> well to me that's not enjoyable five hours. The first fifteen minutes is enjoyable, not the other four and forty five, right? And in RPGs they do it by just padding it out with fetch quests and grinding and all sorts of other you know, nonsense, which I, I personally can't stand, if the whole thing is 40 hours of a really great story, then okay, I'll just, you know, I, I probably also prefer it shorter, Joel, because I agree with you, I'm old, we're older now, but I can sit through the 40 hours in chunks. It doesn't have to be all one shot. We do two hours here, two hours there, as long as it's entertaining, but if they're just stretching it out, then, you know, who needs it? 
I like a well done sandbox, and that kind of um, sort of necessitates length. But I think the thing with a well done sandbox is you, sh is you should have a main quest that's probably in RPGs should be sort of twenty to thirty hours. But uh, you want you want to have sandboxy elements that don't affect the progress of the main quest. I think. Um, Although its um, its its leveling needed to be patched badly, Elder Scrolls Oblivion was a particularly good example of uh, um, a sandbox game with an objective that you could finish quite quickly, but you could spend hundreds of hours, which I did, going off and doing side quests without really affecting uh, your route to the objective. But again, that's a genre-to-genre -genre thing. You couldn't do something equatable in an adventure. So, so one other point I want to make about games today versus back then is that back then the games were basically made by first one guy, you know, like an artist like Richard Garriott, or then it became like three guys or four guys or five guys, and they could afford to take risks and do whatever they wanted, and if it was good, it got good reviews. If not, it got bad reviews. Nowadays, the gaming industry is like the movie industry where every game costs, you know, tens of millions of dollars to make, except for some indie games, that's, which is trying to get back to that paradigm. But all the big titles, they cost huge amounts of money to make. And in the movie industry, I mean, I took some classes on this in school, and like basically, they, they, according to what they said in the classes at least, the producers have no idea what's going to be a good movie and what's not. They don't say like, okay, well, based on my experience in movie going, I think this movie will be good. They, they have a feeling, but they don't act on that. They just say, okay, we, we're going to have to fund ten movies this year, we know that one of them will be a blockbuster, two of them will be okay, and the rest of them will probably all suck. And we don't know which ones they are, so we're just going to fund them all and we'll, we'll market the heck out of all of them. But in terms of which titles we pick, we're going to be safe, so we'll go for the sequels. Like, we think this number two will probably do well because number one did well. And this one is very similar to this other movie that did well, so it'll probably be good. And it's basically the same thing in the game industry nowadays. So even if you're making a really good game and you don't have the publisher you know, marketing behind it, you can't have like the polish that you need to make it really super good like maybe it was before you know, 20, 30 years ago. You don't have the marketing to get it out there. I think that's the real challenge nowadays. Not that there aren't good games, but it's hard for the good games to, to float to the top and get that extra level of polish to make them great games. I have heard developers talk about that a lot, especially over the past 10 or 15 years. But what you end up finding is that another level comes in where people jump on that bandwagon but have no intention of making that classic game in the end. They end up just putting out more garbage under the auspices of, remember back in the days when games were good and blah, blah, blah. And then it's just, it's another pile of manure on top of the old one. How do you guys think the indie game scenes sort of uh, tying into these differences between game dev then, game dev now, and how people are interpreting stuff? Because you get a lot of crappy, look, we're using gratuitous JRPG-style pixel art. One of the dangers of the indie scene is, um, or what's going on right now, is Steam, Steam which is the modern um, marketplace for games, is like chock full of uh, shit, to put it bluntly. And the, um, the danger is, is, as a guy who lived through the Atari age, where you could go down to any drugstore and buy um, some really crappy game for a dollar on the Atari, consumer confidence like drops like a rock, you know, thrown off a cliff when you basically can't really trust any any game that you buy off of Steam. I can't tell you how many. I've got 500 and something games on Steam that are. Uh, indie games that I've gotten mostly from Humble Bundles or, you know, special deals or whatever, and most of them I would, ne would never play because they're just terrible. And the Steam's just full of this stuff, and if if we don't, like, drain in the quality of this stuff, um, we could see another market crash. Yeah, well, I guess, guess this is a problem of nowadays. Everyone can develop a game even even without skills at all. I mean, if I want to put together a game by myself, I can do that on a weekend without any skills at all. I, I had had some some programming background back then and so, but I can do it. I can use some easy tools, stick together something, free sounds, free animations, free whatever, do a game. And even if I'm lucky, you know, I can put it on uh, online somewhere to get at least a few bucks out of it. 
but I, I wouldn't wouldn't try to do. But that's another story. The other but thing you is can use simple tools to make good stuff. I mean, uh, for example, I suppose the uh, the uh, homebrew interactive fiction scene is a good example because you've got people using tads, or, uh, which is quite simple, or even Twine, which I know is just choose your own adventure. But you have got some fairly quality stuff coming through it. So simplicity of the tools isn't per se a problem, I don't think. No, 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 no. Yeah, totally, totally agree with you. But just to say what what Joe said before, and there are so many bad games out there, and I totally agree. We have the internet, we have the App Store, we had everything. App Store changed a lot, from my perspective, on 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 games. Um, mobile gaming was a huge topic. Uh, App Store introduced it, so um, the 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 players um, who decide how much they play and how much they pay for a game. I mean, this changed a lot to the App Store because if I think about some adventure games, they are available in the App Store as well. They are not com comparable price-wise if you put them in the App Store for a, for a price that an adventure game normally would cost. So if they want to have the game in the App Store, they have to go to a lower price level. That means they are not able to develop a game maybe they would like to develop content-wise, gameplay-wise, uh, um, whatever. So this this changed a lot as well, and I'm not so happy about that situation, um, too. But what I like is um, talking about indie scene or so, companies like Watch It Eye Games or so, ne, if they put in the old spirit graphical-wise, so uh, pixelating it and then so, and put in an interesting great story, I, I really enjoy the games so far. I really like them, and I would... I hope that we see more from them, and um, yeah, I, I like that they continue that as much as possible. Um, what is the final decision? Uh, I guess we'll have to take uh, have to take a uh, take a vote. But I think most of us are going to be kind of ambivalent. I mean, from my perspective, as someone who currently plays both old and new games, I, I usually have a couple of each uh, that I flip between, and I do like. And with the harder adventure games, I do like leaving them to sit and I think about the problem um, rather than referring to a solution necessarily. But um, yeah, I think there. Are, I think the thing is, when looking at old games, we get to cherry pick the very best. We get to go and find the ultimate. But yeah, we cherry. We uh, when we look at good old games, for example, a lot. Of, okay, there's some crap old games on there as well now. But mostly, it's the very, it's the very best. Hence, my project to find it's kind of the forgotten games. While I'm going around and doing trades with people and saying, "Do you have any obscure games from the 80s or 90s that no one remembers?" Because I want to find out what was in these forgotten games. I have a few of my own. And just as, um, and in 10 years' time, it's the good games from now that will be remembered. So. I don't. I don't think there's a significant advantage per se of new over old games. But there, it is very easy to um, be tempted to look through rose-tinted spectacles at the very best of old games. So I suppose we're at the next. Question, and I'm informed that it's probably Stuart's fault, and I see that he's slunk off in shame. Um, somehow, somehow, we collectively voted for this, which is fine evidence against democracy. Um, must all game collectors be super nerdy, or can some be attractive and cool? The person who suggested this, and to a certain extent, the people who voted for it, really deserve to suffer now. So, ah, um, hello, Stuart. I didn't suggest it. Not your idea. No, I did suggest it. <laughs> it's still <laughs> a joke. <laughs> yeah, well, everyone always votes for the joke option. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Actually, I was actually thinking about this this morning when I found out we actually picked this topic. It reminds me of that uh, song that uh, that guy was in H.P. Mendoza that's in our group that he put out in Ten Years I'll Be Cool, which is which is really cute. It's like I guess. You know, a lot of people that back then were were socially awkward because they, they had a hobby that was not shared by the majority of their peers. Because this was a pretty niche thing in the 80s, especially, and even in the 90s, you know, PC gaming was not a big deal. It was console gaming. It was Nintendo and Sega and PlayStation, whatever. And PC gaming was had always been niche. So yeah, people that never, cool. yeah, <laughs> for that reason or other reasons, I don't know, but. Uh, People that, that had these niche hobbies, and then now you find like sort of your 
your natural crowd, like through the internet. Like, oh wow, this, this is the guy that I would have been amazing friends with if he would live next door to me instead of 500,000 miles away. You just, you know, <laughs> in that circle you gain some, some coolness for sure, whether you're actually any cooler in real life, I don't know about. <laughs> There's a larger conversation in this, this topic that um, is actually more interesting than a lot of us probably think on the surface, and it's something we've talked about uh, in my little group a lot, it's, there's a psychological phenomenon um, uh, in the whole of nerd culture um, uh, period, which of which we are a small subset. Um, which is, if you we've been going to uh, the Dragon Con convention and other that I've talked about before for about 12 years now, and um, since we first went, uh, things have popped up in popular culture like uh, Big Bang Theory and um, other little things that have kind of had this sort of uh, cooling effect on um, nerds. And we've definitely seen it as, if you look at DragonCon as like a, a collective, which it is, there's like 100,000 people down there and it's, it's this collective of nerds. The uh, population has changed considerably in 12 years. It has shifted from um, what I would consider to be classic nerds in the old days and slowly has turned into this sort of frat party, um, which isn't a judgment on frat party, it's just a, a observation of fact. Cool looking people kind of um, hipster party scene that is not at all like it was 12 years ago. And it's a pretty modern phenomenon where people I think young people that are looking for a tribe are are kind of latching on to what we're doing. I think we are, um, if, if nerd is cool, then we have to be the coolest people on earth uh, because <laughs> we, <laughs> we are the nerd. We were nerdy before they were. <laughs> so uh, in a way that, that works where PC game collectors end up being cool because we're freaking nerdier than, you know, standard nerds. So it's been an interesting, there's, you could write a psychological study paper on what's going on right now for sure. Well, I've, I've, I, I agree with you there, Joel, much like my disagreement from the last part, but uh, I, I happen to be seeing on Facebook now the South by Southwest Festival went on all last week in Austin, Texas. And Austin, Texas's phrase is keep Austin weird. Because I follow a lot of game developers who happen to live in Austin, it's very funny that back in the old days, they were the young crowd that were saying, this is terrific and South by Southwest is wonderful and we're part of keeping Austin weird and things like that. Now that we're all older and I grew up and got older with them, I now watch from the sidelines and I see these same people saying what you're saying. It's not the same anymore. They're, they're doing all kinds of weird stuff. They're really odd, these people. And I think it's not because they're doing anything different. It's just because there's more people that jumped on and, and got into this vibe and we're getting older. You know, uh, you were saying, are you saying that Dragon Con, the convention that you have been going to for the past 12, 13 years, it, has it changed for the better or for the worse? Are you happy that the change is going on or does it bother you? I, we've discussed this at length. Um, I personally think it has changed for the worst. However, I will um, footnote that with I accept what is going on and we make we have changed our behavior to accept what is going on down there because it's just the way things are and being a like a crotchety old nerd um, isn't going to um, you know isn't going to change anything it's not going to make me happier and it's not going to make them happier um, at, the end of the day, at the end of the day I'm happy to be able to have a Facebook group about PC gaming that, you know, whether they're like us and played these games forever ago and are super knowledgeable about them or they're new people who just want to know more about them, it's a win either way. There's no there's no loss there. So um, to answer your question, Joe, Dragon Con is not as good as it used to be for me. 
um, I'm trying to change. I'm in a lot of fringe subcultures. I seem to be one of these people who's doomed to be an outlier. Liar. I'm very geeky. I own drinking horn. I like death metal. I, I'm queer. So on and so forth. You know, if if if, if, um, if, if there if there is a if, if there is a minority tick box, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm clearly, I am clearly white to the point of being transparent, despite, uh, despite coming from an, an area that's uh, theoret theoretically, quote unquote, exotic. But beyond that, you know, if there is a minority tick box, I have it, and a lot of these are subcultural. And I think what's quite nice about uh, the increasing call value of nerd culture is that uh, a wider variety of people feel able to express their, express their inner, nerd, inner nerdiness. You've no longer got that sort of division where, you know, unless your parents, uh, when, I, when I was growing up, generally speaking, if your parents were wealthy enough to own, a, uh, to own a PC, then you could be into PC gaming. But that was, I mean, they were two grand, and that was when two grand was actually, you know, real, real money. I mean, not the not sort of not the sort of not uh, the sort of devalued two grand that we have now, which is still plenty of money by anyone's standards. Um, it's become a lot more accessible. The internet's also made it a lot more accessible. So, I think a lot of what we're seeing, I mean, apart from the joy of complaining about young people these days, which I've been doing since I was about sixteen, uh, you've got a lot more people who are able to access these nerdy, nerdy pursuits and I, I think um, the sort of phenomenon that is uh, that is cosplay is a really great example of that accessibility accessibility cross uh, crossover and people feeling free to express it and you've also reached a critical mass where you know it used to be that dressing up in a Star Trek costume was enough to have was enough to have rocks thrown at you in most self-respecting communities now it's something you can go you can go out and do uh, without anyone thinking more than, hey, that's an interesting slash weird slash actually kind of cool hobby. And um, um, you've got a lot more egalitarianism. Personal experience that not only is it acceptable to do that, but the general public now will fawn over you and talk about how cool it is and you know want to take pictures with you and grab onto you and do all this kind of weird stuff that you know in the 90s was nowhere close to have been acceptable. I think it's kind of nice to have that acceptability, although we've kind of lost our niche, our nicheness. I think the um, greater accessibility and egalitarianism to um, the le the reduction in barriers to people getting into this incredibly cool range of hobbies um, more than makes up for the irritation value of you know having kids kicking their balls into our yard. Young people now, gaming is the main form of entertainment for young people, more so than movies and television and all this kind of stuff. Well, the people that did not grow up playing Ultima 3 or any, you know, Sierra games or anything from back in the day, at some point in their life get interested in the history behind what it is they're doing. And that probably is what is uh, making P big box PC gaming because gaming started on PCs to a certain extent anyway so if you're gonna research the history of gaming you pretty much have to look at the big box PC gaming scene and um, that would contribute a lot to the, this cool um, thing we're seeing as well. I'm not sure that gaming started on the PC I think that's debatable but I, w I would agree that you know, back in the day, the console games were more like kid stuff, like you know, Space Invaders and things like that, and Pac-Man, quote-unquote, kid stuff, whereas the PC games were much more advanced in terms of you know, they required a lot more thinking to figure out what to do, to make your maps, to figure out the puzzles. I think the early PC games were targeting uh, an older audience, yes. Right, right. Just so from that perspective... They still are, too. I mean, uh, the majority of PC, ga uh, PC gamers, last time I checked the statistics of this, were uh, sort of mid-twenties to, uh, to 40s and 50s rather than being, per se, uh, rather than being teenagers. So we, PC gamers tend to be a slightly older, slightly more affluent demographic in general. No, no, I, 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 that's, I, I said what I was going to say, but uh, something else I was thinking on that note, I mean, given the fact that you know, a couple of people said that PC games back then is different than it was now. The total computer, some of wealthy at least, or have 
just decide to spend all of your disposable income on that hobby for us today. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I, I know, like, the games that I played earliest were, like, text adventures and things like that, and they helped teach me, like, how to read, because I was encouraged to read to understand what was going on on the screen, and my dad was playing the game. And I know that, I, I, I feel very confident that adventure games that I played, they really helped develop my thinking processes. And sometimes there's something stupid, like the Monkey Wrench and Monkey Hound too, but a lot of times you have to really figure out what's going on. Um, and even RPGs, you know, similar thing. You have to you have to make it strategize and figure out what to do, and it's definitely much more brain stimulating than sitting in front of a TV and just vegging out for like three hours, like you know, I used to do sometimes, and some of my friends did. So I wonder if there's any correlation between people that played games back then and you know higher incomes today or better education. I, I'm just speculating. I have no idea. I would, I, would, I would wonder if there's any way, if, if it's just completely random or if there's any correlation there. I'm just bringing no, that up I, on the topic. I, yeah, like I don't know either. Like think, I, don't, I like to think I'm clever, but uh, on the other hand, I, duck, I ducked out of uh, many opportunities to get higher income in exchange for, you know, living in the middle of nowhere and looking out of countryside. So, well, you, you made uh, the choices you've got rational decision-making there. <laughs> you made the choices that you wanted to make, but, but and, and that was probably good for you to do that, but a nice drinking horn, by the way. But um, I just, uh, I don't know, in the topic of, you know, are, are there are people cool today that weren't cool back then? I wonder if that has anything to do with it. I, I have no idea, honestly. But I guess it is, just, it is just much more common these days. Maybe we had mentioned a few things earlier, like you have every device, everyone, no, who has, who has an, an, an handy and... An, an, a mobile phone, which which is the smartphone today. So everyone has a smartphone. Everyone games on smartphones. If you go to the subway or wherever, you see everyone is gaming. Girls, women are much more into gaming than years ago, I, I guess. And there are some games which are dominated by by women and played by women. So if they have, are in in a, in a relationship with someone who is gaming, they have they are much more opener to the topic, I think, um, than it would be like maybe 20 years ago, where it maybe would be a bit dominated by men at all. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe Joe can share some of his wisdom from back then, um, how it was. Um, but uh, I think yeah, Joe's getting better at being referred to as the old man of the mountains. I, think, I, I just think you you have as as we mentioned you see it everywhere in the TV and even in big movies there's a president and if the president has like five minutes to breathe he's sitting in front of a gaming system and then plays a bit so it's much more a, a wider topic and and more acceptable and accessible for everyone and it's yeah, a huge it's, it's not stigmatized anymore it used it yeah, used to be exactly, exactly. you know you were inherently uncool if you were into this shit I I think so and. And if I see what what's going on in Germany, this this uh, retro scene. If you look into that, you know, there are so many interested into all old game systems, old consoles, and the the if there's an event where they show old devices, old consoles, or so they they go bigger and bigger, and more events um, occur during the months, and there is an, the audience is, is is rising for that. It's it's getting bigger, and I, I like that. It's nice to see. Thanks for listening to the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can also watch the original video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel, which includes the show and tell segments. 